We've already looked at day one of creation week. And as we come now to day two, we see here at the second day, as it's dawning here, beginning of the earth, may I remind you, is still covered with water. It probably had the appearance of something like a seething, seething cauldron of mud. Maybe kind of like if you've ever gone to Rotorua and see those mud pots, maybe something like that, I don't know. Uh, but there's no dry land at this point. Uh, that doesn't come till day three. There's no breathable atmosphere, so no life uh, as far as that breathes air could, could exist on the planet at this, place, at, at this point. And so it's entirely surface of the earth is just a liquid soup of elements, predominantly water. And so we have to ask the question here, how did God form? How did God form? So the first three days, remember, he's, he's forming. The last three days of creation week, he's filling it. So how is he forming it? On day two, we'll look at Genesis 1, verse 6. Genesis 1, verse 6 says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we see here as day number two dawns, what's God doing? Well, God sovereignly created a division for the waters. Notice it's plural, waters. How does he do this? And I'll explain what that's all about in a moment. But how does he do this? Again, notice God created by speaking. As verse 6 says, he just said, it just says, God said. He doesn't have to... He doesn't have to do anything other than just speak it into existence. He commands the water to separate, and it obeys His command. And notice there's no long period of time here. There's no millions or billions of years. It's just something that was done instantly. As soon as God speaks, it comes into being. What does He do on day two? We see God created an expanse, verse 6 says. Let there be this expanse in the midst of the waters. What's God doing? Well, He placed this expanse, some of your Bibles might say firmament, between the water that remained on the earth and the water that's, that rose above this expanse. Why is He doing this? Well, God formed an expanse to create a boundary, giving structure to the upper waters and the lower waters. So this expanse is is uh, is the atmosphere, if you will. If you look uh, at uh, whoever came up with that, you'll see there's there's various layers in our atmosphere. And so the ex- expanse is this atmosphere that's distinguishing all the surface liquid waters of the earth from the atmospheric waters. Why? Well, these first three days, God does all this separating process as He's forming and this is vital to life so God's forming his creation here into a place that is suitable for life particularly getting to the climax of his creation it's going to be a place suitable for human life at the end of day one there's there's no way a human being could possibly have lived on this earth 
that word expanse in your Bible speaks of something that is spread out. It's derived from a verb that means to spread and overlay. Uh, to give you an idea what that means, the, that, that word there, expanse, was used of the hammering of gold into thin sheets of metal. And so when gold, uh, when, it, when it's hammered, it, it flattens out and it actually spreads into a plate. And that's how gold plates were made in uh, biblical times. For example, when uh, God told the Israelites to make uh, the Ark of the Covenants and overlay it with gold, they would they'd take their hammers and they'd pound out the gold, flatten it out, and put it over the various uh, features that are there in the tabernacle. So they, they'd spread it out into the plate. And that's how gold plates were made to overlay different fixtures you'd find in the tabernacle. And so the imagery here of verse 6 is of this very vast protective layer that overlays the earth. It's dividing uh, the the water, the oceans, the seas, and and so forth from the atmospheric water and the clouds and all that water vapor that God's put in our atmosphere. He's preparing it for life. And notice, as, as God often does here in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. God called it heaven. We see the sovereignty of God in naming things in Scripture. And the sovereignty of God appears in this day's activity here in naming the expanse heaven. And we also see His sovereignty as He is controlling His domain. The heavens, the atmosphere, and so forth are not the domain of little g-gods. That's important because pagan mythology considered the heavens to be, to be the domains of the high gods. However, according to Genesis here, God not only creates this domain, but He's controlling it by making this division between it. Therefore, the theological significance is this that God is sovereign over all of His creation. Over all of it. He reigns supreme over every aspect of His creation. There are no other gods out there in the, the, the heavens, so to speak. There's only one God. And He rules it all. So that's God forming. Now how does He fill this space? How did God fill the space in the water that He had divided here on day two? Well, that's day number five. Remember, day two and five correspond with each other, just as day one and four correspond with each other. So, look at day, or sorry, verse twenty, and we will spend the majority of our time here in this section. Verse twenty says, "And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures." Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. That ends day five. So we see here on day five, God created life in the the water, in the seas, and in the sky. 
How did he do this? Again, God speaks. And we see the means of creation is, is a decree from God in verse 20. So let me ask you this. If evolution were correct, you might expect to find God creating sea creatures from some pre-existing life form and then take lots and lots of time to move on to other life forms. But what Scripture says here is that God spoke all of the sea creatures and birds into existence, and He does it immediately from nothing. He didn't need any pre-existing material, so to speak, to create the sea creatures and the birds. Notice here on day 5 that we see that God created the sea creatures in verse 20. And, it's, and verse 21 goes well with verse 20. We notice uh, what verse 21 says. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. So it says that God created them. The Hebrew verb there is bara, the same one used back in verse 1 where it says in the beginning God created. The word bara in Hebrew speaks of a direct creation. In other words, it explicitly rules out the possibility that these creatures evolved through some very long process of time. It didn't. It was, it was an immediate thing. In other words, the Bible is clearly ruling out any form of evolution. It doesn't matter if that's an atheistic evolution or a theistic evolution. Verse 21 contains an astonishing phrase here when it mentions the great sea creatures. The Hebrew word there can refer to large creatures. Uh, things, uh, for example, it could refer to dragons. It could refer to sea serpents. And I've, I've been trying to figure out why, why are the great sea creatures singled out here? Because it mentions other water creatures here as well. Well, perhaps the answer is found in the fact that, remember Moses is writing this. He grew up as a prince of Egypt. He would have known a lot of Egyptian mythology. Possibly the answer is, uh, if you go back to the ancient Egyptian as well as Mesopotamian mythology, it was just filled with all kinds of stories and tales and legends of great sea monsters. And these were supposed to be gods, and the ancient pagans feared these sea deities. They were greatly afraid of them. And such myths were very common at the time Moses uh, wrote the biblical account here. And so here the biblical text simply states that God creates even these largest of the, the, the most monstrous sea creatures of the deep. They're not gods to be feared. In fact, they're created beings. We read about one of those great sea monsters, so to speak, in... Psalm 104, but don't turn there. Turn over to Job chapter 41, and we'll just read one of the sea monsters that God created on day 5. Job 41, you keep your finger here in Genesis. Job comes before Psalms, in case you're wondering where it's at. Job 41. I want you to see as we read this, is this is one of the sea creatures that God made. It's a pretty scary one in this account. But look what God says, Job 41, verse 1. 
Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a cord? This is God speaking to Job here. He says, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? That ends God's question on Leviathan. So, the answer is, there is no human being on earth that can control Leviathan, this great sea monster. So God asked the question to, to Job, well, who's able to stand against me? Who is able to stand against me? And here's the point, my friends. God is the one that created these sea monsters, so to speak, these sea creatures. And they're, they're awesome to behold. They have great power, greater than ours. Man can't control them. So if man can't control just one of God's sea creatures, how can we contend with God? How can we contend with God? We shouldn't. In fact, Job has the right response at the end here, and he submits himself to the will of the all-powerful Creator. Verse 21, though, goes, goes on. is highlighting the huge variety of sea creatures that God has made, and God just says not only the, the great sea creatures that were created here, but He also says every living creature that moves. Now what is described here is is arguing against the idea that God made simple organisms that somehow developed through natural processes into more complex ones. The text explicitly is including great and small sea creatures. So so small things like the plankton that the great whales of our oceans eat. So what is he what's God doing? He spoke them into existence and he does it all at once, all on day five. Well, let me uh, use some examples that we see in creation. I'll give you just a few of God's amazing sea creatures that I have I have learned about over the years. So some of these you'll find if you ever watch the DVDs, uh, amazing creatures that defy evolution. Uh, very interesting set of DVDs we have at home if you want to watch that. Amazing creatures that defy evolution. Let me just give you a few. Number one is the archer fish. In this picture here, you'll see the the archer fish, the various stages of what the archer fish can do. They have this very unique ability to shoot out jets of water from their mouth, and and they do that to shoot at insects that are that are uh, on the leaves and on the branches overhanging the water. By forcing their gills shut, they have this ability to shoot a very powerful jet of water with great accuracy. 
And by doing this, they're able then to knock the insect into the water, where the insect now became, becomes easy prey for the archer fish. You can understand, I hope, now why it's called the archer fish. Uh, they're archer. And so their aim is, is uh, according to what I've read, accurate up to about a meter and a half. And this is not a large fish, just a few centimeters. But they even have the ability to compensate for the refraction that's caused by the water surface, as you'll see in this next little picture here. Archer fish, uh, you know, if you're in the water and you're looking up through the water, you know, light is refracted. You do know that, don't you? And so the archer fish is able to adjust for that refraction in the water and still hit the bug or the insect. And so they have the, uh, they also have a very God-given shape that God's given to them as well as their God-given color that is natural camouflage that makes them nearly invisible as the insects look down through the water. So let me ask you, how could the archer fish have evolved with those kind of skills? I mean, how many millions of years does an organism take before, uh, you know, it dies of starvation? <laughs> Right? How many times do you, you know, how are you going to figure that out over a long period of time? Archer fish can, by the way, and do also feed the same way other fish do, stuff in the water. But they seem to prey on the insects just for sport. Another part of God's amazing creation is seahorses. Wow, what a what an in, in, interesting variety of seahorses. If you go to an aquarium... I've gone to aquariums where they've got just dozens and dozens of different varieties of seahorses, and this is just one of many kinds. But they're a kind of fish, but they're very different from other kinds of fish. Their scales are fused into a bony armor plate that makes them unappetizing for predators to eat. Their jaws are fixed, and, and they're actually toothless. So they, they actually eat food by sucking in tiny shrimp. And they can grip with their tails, and they use their tails to hold on to the plants there in the, in the water in order to, be, to avoid being swept away by the currents in the ocean. One of the things I found interesting about uh, seahorses is they, probably most amazingly, is they, they reproduce by role reversal. In other words, the female deposits her eggs into the male inside the male, and then gestation takes place within the male's body. And so when the eggs hatch, he goes through labor and gives birth to live seahorses. Ladies, don't get any ideas here, because God made it this way. Uh, it won't work with human beings. But, uh, but the, the male then nurtures the young seahorses, and you got to look at that and just marvel. Say, well... What can account for these amazing features? Could that happen over billions of years? There, there are no evidences, by the way, of any transitional species between seahorses and fish. They don't exist. And that's because they didn't evolve from other species. They were a unique part of God's original creation on day five. Another one of God's amazing sea creatures is the hermit crab. Unlike other crabs, hermit crabs have no outer shell of their own. Well, that's not good when you're a crab. You're, you're the food. 
you're sitting around as food for the predators. You you need some protection. Not good if you don't have your own portable house. And so their abdomen is very soft, and they'd be very easy prey if they didn't have some means of protection. So what hermit crabs do, again, I wouldn't recommend you do this, but what they do is they go and they borrow U-shells from snails. By the way, they don't kill the snail. It's, they take empty ones, always using empty shells, never killing what is in what used to be inside that shell. And so then they will migrate from shell to shell as they grow within their home. And so their their legs have been designed by God. Very interesting. Their bodies can kind of work their way into their in and out of shells. They're, but they are, their crab's legs are perfectly designed for its habitat. It uses the front legs for walking. The other legs go inside the shell and, and kind of kind of attach themselves to their new home. And so the, the crabs enlarged uh, also, this, this is also interesting, how long did, did it take for this to evolve? Their one claw, the right claw, is bigger than the other one, and, and it, God has designed it so it acts like a door to protect them from predators. And so the crabs enlarged right claw is, is their kind of... Uh, and they can bring it in and protect themselves from those things that might try to get them. And so let me ask you, could the crabs have evolved all of those features? If, if it took them millions of years to do that, then they would probably be extinct today. But the loss of its own shell would be contrary to evolution's principle of what is the, called the survival of the fittest. The hermit crab is just another evidence of an intelligent creator. Another example of one of God's amazing sea creatures is the sea cucumber. Very strange sea. No, there's there's one that orange thing in the picture. Uh, think about uh, they have an amazing defense mechanism. They don't have a hard shell. They can be attacked by anything almost at any time. And, but what they do is very unique. See how long did this take to evolve? Because when they're attacked, what they do is basically they spill their guts. In other words, they expel all of their internal organs. Imagine you doing that. How long would you survive? Oh, no, I'm being attacked. <laughs> there goes all my guts. Well, that's what they do. You say, why do they do that? That's because when a fish or whatever comes along, you know, fish looks like it's going to attack them and eat them. I just spit out my guts, and the fish, ooh, yummy. It gets a little distracted by all this food that's suddenly in the water. That's what they do. The way God designed them. And then God also designed them, of course, to then then they can uh, reproduce all of their internal organs again, so they, they keep on living. Interesting creatures. So, could that feature be a product of just evolutionary chance? I mean, how many times does it die, you know, spilling its guts before it, you know, it becomes extinct, right? It's just more proof that an all-wise creator designed this creature. And then my wife and I were talking about uh, all the seashells in New Zealand. We've got a, we've got this little plaque that she's made up on our wall in our family room of uh, seashells. Seashells are quite fascinating. Just one of the many things that God has made in His creation. Let me just show you something here. We got this little book uh, 
interesting book if you want to read it, A Photographic Guide to Seashells of New Zealand. And it says, says in this book that the, uh, the well-known name seashell in the title refers to marine mollusk. Mollusk. It says there's over 2,900 kinds of mollusk that live in New Zealand waters. That's just New Zealand waters. Worldwide, uh, according to Wikipedia, because this book was written several years ago, but according to Wikipedia, the uh, the category called uh, mollusca is the second largest phylum or level of invertebrate animals. Want to take a guess what the number one invertebrate animal in the world is? That would be insects. And it says that the, the members, uh, you, anyway, they're called mollusks, or spelled different ways here, but there's around 85... Thousand living species of mollusk that are recognized in the world, and the number of fossil species is estimated somewhere between sixty thousand and one hundred thousand additional species. So that brings it up to somewhere around one hundred and eighty-five thousand of these things. It's amazing. The, this this book here, the uh, Seashells of New Zealand, also says. Uh, about 75% of New Zealand mollusks are less than 10 millimeters long when adults. I put a picture, of, there's just some of them. Put a, another picture on the screen here. Some of them are very small. So you notice on the bottom, that's one millimeter. So these, these are only like one millimeter. <laughs> and so it says uh, 75% of New Zealand mollusks are less than 10 millimeters long when adults, and they're found grazing on seaweeds under rocks, in sand, and living as parasites. So uh, you want to do an interesting exercise with your children or with yourself one day. Just go to a New Zealand beach and, and, and comb around looking for all these little, very little creatures that God has made. And you might be asking, well, why, why did God make all these little creatures that most people don't pay any attention to, never look at, and don't even notice? Why? What did God say in Psalm 19? The same same reason God created all these these billions of galaxies out there that most people never see. Same reason. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, guess what? The mollusk declare the glory of God too. <laughs> so let me encourage you to go go look. Take your little find find ways of looking at these little things. Take your little micro uh, not a microscope, but a Magnifying glass. Have a have a look sometime. See what God has made. We also see, though, as uh, we go, we go on in Genesis chapter one, that God created the birds. He creates the birds on day five. Verse twenty-one here describes how this was so. If you turn back to Genesis one, we see that God created every winged bird according to its kind. Notice He did not merely begin the process with some other life form that somehow later mutated and developed into a bird or some more complex one. He, no, he created innumerable species. And notice it's each according to its kind. And notice that the birds were created with the ability to fly. Immediately, they have the ability to fly. 
They didn't have to develop this over a long period of time. It's not a skill acquired through an evolutionary process. Flying is something that God created them to do right at the beginning here on day five. Have you ever thought about the variety of bird life? It's just remarkable if you study birds. Uh, I'll just put a few few photos here up on the screen. Quickly go through these, Daniel, as I mention them, and just gaze at God's creation. Just And as you look at this, think of the Creator. Think of the the love of the Creator for beauty and diversity. All right? Here's just, just some of God's birds that He has made. For example, pink flamingos. Long-legged cranes. Radiantly colored parrots. Beautiful peacocks. And fancy cockatoos. You just gotta you gotta look at those photos and just your jaw drop and say, Wow, God's amazing. He loves beauty, he loves color, he loves diversity. Those are just some of the birds. <laughs> wow, there's many, many more that we could talk about. Let me just tell you a few. For example, how about the albatross? We don't get to see albatross as much, but they have a huge wingspan of about three meters. It's the largest of all non-extinct flying birds. An adult albatross can fly 1,600 kilometers in a single day. Wish I could do that. How do they do that? Oh, God gave them huge wings. And they're able to stay flying, soaring for, for a very long period of time, landing only on the water or on boats for a short rest, or to get some food. But they manage these great feats of flight by gliding long distances using those great wings that God's given to them. A young albatross, uh, I read, uh, could circle the world up to seven times before touching solid earth. The only time an albatross will land, on, uh, or actually land on land, is when it breeds in the Antarctic region. So how does it get water, you might say? If it's not going on the land, how does it get water so it can continue to live and exist? Where is it getting its drinking water from? Well, again, God designed it that an albatross can drink seawater and then it it excretes the salt through its nasal passages. Think about that. Could these amazing features evolve through a natural process? Is it going to get that in millions of years? It would have been, it would have become extinct, you know, without water, obviously. But no, the albatross is a unique creature that could only have been designed by an all-wise creator. Another one that's very interesting to me is, again, you you can see this one on incredible creatures that defy evolution, is the woodpecker. Here's a red-headed woodpecker. It has four strong toes that enable it to cling firmly to the sides of trees. It uses its long, sharp beak to chisel holes in trees and is able to build nests in in those holes, in those very holes that it's chiseled out of the trees. But it also uses that to find bugs, which it, it eats. 
A woodpecker can peck up to 500 times per minute, striking at a rate of 8 times per second. The bird's beak hits the wood at a speed of 20 kilometers per hour. Think of it this way. You say 20 kilometers per hour. Okay, think of it. Okay. Imagine yourself lining yourself up with a tree and running as fast as you can headfirst into a tree, doing that eight times every second. What do you think would happen to your head? probably kill yourself if you know you keep doing that sort of thing right well that that's what the woodpecker's doing so how's it able to do this and not get a headache and survive and live and not go extinct well woodpeckers are able to do that because god's designed them with shock absorbers their head has this built-in shock absorbing system that cushions their brain so it doesn't kill them that's that's a problem with, with boxers, for example. Human boxers get in the ring, they're getting their brains bashed and knocked around, and and uh, they're getting concussions, and like rugby players and people. God didn't design our brains to, to get that kind of shock. So could this creature have evolved? No way. The woodpecker is clearly the product of, of intelligent design. Another one the Bible talks about is the bald eagle. Well, maybe not the bald eagle, but the Bible mentions eagle several times. I love the bald eagle, the national em- emblem of the United States of America. It's a beautiful bird, big bird, full-grown eagles that have wingspans of about 2.3 meters. They have incredible lifting power. Uh, they're able to lift about 4 pounds or 2 kilos. Pretty big fish. Eagles have incredible eyesight. The eye is almost as large as a human being's eye, but far more uh, powerful. Their their sharpness is four times that of a perfect human being's vision. It's amazing for a a bird this size. The skeleton only weighs about half a pound or about 250 grams. It's only about 5% of its total weight. How's it able to do that? Well, God designed it... uh, the, the bones to be light so they can fly, obviously. They, they, they have hollow bones. Bald eagles live along the coast. They live by, by lakes and rivers where they're able to feed mainly on fish. How do they catch their fish? Well, God gave them talons, very sharp claws. As you, well, you can see in the other photo there, their, their claws are talons and they're, they're, they use those for hunting and they're able to use those very sharp talons to penetrate the skin of a fish or or a, a rat or whatever it might be that they catch. And they have the ability to see fish in the water as they're flying around from great heights, and they can they can see that fish that's even in the water and, and swoop down on it and catch it as it flies by. The Bible talks about, like in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it talks about comparing us to, to eagles and we can, we can soar and fly like eagles. We won't, we won't grow weary. Well, how can an eagle soar around without getting weary? Well, eagles use thermals which uh, rise up from, as a result of warm air, and they get these updrafts that are generated by the terrain they live in. 
such as coming from the valleys or the mountain slopes. And they've got these, remember, light, hollow bones, big wings that are able to soar, accomplished with very little wing flapping, enable them to conserve their energy. And these magnificent birds, again, are not a product of just random chance, but have been created by our all-wise God. But what did God say about His creation here on day 5? Well, look at verse 21. We see that God saw that His creation was good. Why is God continually saying His creation is good? Well, it's a reflection of Himself. God's goodness is reflected in what He has made. It's, It's perfect at this point. And so even in our fallen state, you and I can see God's goodness as we walk around and we observe His creation. All those sea creatures and the birds demonstrate something about God. You ought, you ought to notice who God is, something about Him, His infinite goodness in, in the unique ways that He's made things. He made all those creatures for His own good pleasure. Bible says. He continually oversees every detail of his, cre- of his creation. How does he do this? He, we, we see it in his loving, sovereign providence. It's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew. He said, not even one sparrow falls to the ground uh, apart from God's will. Not even one bird will fall to the ground without God knowing that. And verse 22 gives us the first blessing that's mentioned in the Bible. We, we see here that God blessed these living creatures that He had made. Now what did God do? Well, it says He blessed the creatures by enabling them to procreate. What is that indicating about God? It indicates that God is, is superior to everything He's made. One thing. He has the superior position. He has the ability to to not only create them, but He gives them the ability to reproduce. This ability to procreate comes only from God. He's the one who has enabled them to do this. He's the one. His Word brings life. Now, did you notice how living creatures reproduce here? In verse 21, it says, according to their kind. Again, explicitly goes against evolution. So what does kind mean? Well, it's a bit confusing. I I, I was trying to use my Hebrew lexicons and concordances to see if they were helpful, and unfortunately they weren't. I kept seeing the word species. The the word species is a little confusing. It's a bit confusing to equate kind and species together, and so the context I find incredibly helpful here because it's showing us that kind is a category of creature that is able to breed together. So, you don't see kind in the scientists uh, in their list of categories that they use to put things in their families and kingdoms and phylums and so forth, all they have. But, but kind is helpful because we know that, okay, these things are able to breed together. and They can only breed with each other. So, if they're, if they're not able to breed together, then they're not of like kind. You know, for example, apes don't give birth to human beings. Like evolution wants to somehow give us that progression. Science has never observed and will never observe the evolution of one species into a new life form. 
You're not going to find it in the fossil creation. It's never been observed because it's never happened. But that's a genetic impossibility that God has put there from the beginning. Every living thing has a complex genetic code, and here's a picture of some DNA, well, sort of what it looks like. And you need to understand, stored within DNA is, if you think of it kind of like a computer program, and maybe you might think of God as the one who created the computer, as well as the one who's programmed everything in that computer, that's kind of what God's doing here in DNA. So, living creatures will only do what God has designed them to do. You say, well, well, why do then so many scientists reject the claim that DNA code offers evidence for an intelligent creator? How can they look at God's creation, which Romans 1 says is clear, it's plain, and reject it? Well, it's because belief in evolution is a spiritual choice that they have chosen to make. They're blindly devoted to chance because they don't want to be morally accountable to a personal creator. If they recognize a creator, then they're accountable to him. And they can't just do whatever they want. They can't just believe whatever they want. Think of it this way. Taking that analogy of the, the computer program and the program. Imagine, imagine your computer... Uh, I'll just take one program in your computer that human beings have programmed. One I use all the time is Microsoft Word. So I use Microsoft Word to make sermons and all sorts of other things. Imagine that computer program that's been designed to, to write words and organize words on a page and so forth, just automatically deciding, I don't like doing all this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn myself into a computer game. Yeah, right. That, that can't happen. Computer games were designed by other people to do what they do, right? They, they can't just turn themselves into a different program. Because they were designed in a certain way, and they do what they're designed when they work. But then some people say, well, what about mutations? You know, you know, your computer analogy, uh, I feel like my computer has mutations and it, you know, it does weird things it wasn't designed to do. And, and some people kind of use that analogy referring to God's creatures sometimes say, see, look, mutations is evidence for evolution. Could a series of random mutations explain how one species evolves into another? Well, here, here's an example of what happens in mutations on the screen here. And obviously the answer to those questions is no, because mutations only alter and destroy existing information in the genetic code. They're not actually adding new information. In fact, if you know anything about mutations, they're not actually usually very helpful, are they? Um, they're, because they're usually destroying existing information, they make things worse for that particular creature. So there's, there's no way that just a series random of mutations could explain evolution. But one thing we do see in God's creation is incredible design. And, and within that, God has given three amazing characteristics within all living organisms that clearly defy evolution. For example, 
Listen to what John MacArthur says in his book. He says, quote, the, All living organisms have three amazing characteristics. First, they are self-sustaining, meaning that they have means by which they sustain their own life. Things like getting food, breathing their atmosphere, and defending themselves from predators. Second, they are self-repairing. If injured, they have means to heal. If fatigued, they can regain strength by rest. Third, they are self-reproducing. They have built into them some means by which they can propagate and thereby produce more organisms of their own species or kind. All three of those abilities are inherent features of life itself. And that fact argues powerfully for an intelligent designer and creator. End quote. That's in the battle for the beginning. So consider this for a moment. I, I've, I've watched several creation DVDs over the years talk about things like the Fagellum motor, which we saw a little bit about that this morning. But consider the difficulty in creating a machine that is has all three of those. And you have to have them all three at the same time. But imagine a machine that is self-sustaining, self-repairing, and self-reproducing. No human being on earth has ever made or ever will make that. Only God has made that. And God has put that very machine into every living organism. Every single cell has all three of those abilities happening within it at the same time. So let me ask you, is, is that not convincing proof for an intelligent designer? Is that not proof for God being the creator of all things? If it's not, then what is? Mankind tries to do those things, but can't do that. Let's just think of some, some application here for a moment. Because we've seen that God has set the power of reproduction innately within creatures that he has made. But we need to understand that he doesn't then just step back from his creation uh, as in the, the deistic sense that they do in deism and, and allow his nature to operate merely on its own. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> God's actively involved in sustaining his creation. Read Colossians 1. as an example of that. Here's what Matthew Henry, a pastor and commentator from a long time ago, he said this, quote, on the screen here, for the power of God's providence preserves all things, as at first His creating power produced them. Fruitfulness is the effect of God's blessing and must be ascribed to it. The multiplying of the fish and the fowl from year to year is still the fruit of His blessing. Well, let us give to God the glory of the continuance of these creatures to this day for the benefit of man. End quote. Matthew Henry rightfully wants us to worship God, to give Him praise, glory, and honor for not only for who He is, but for what He has done. He's the amazing creator of all these things. Scripture wholly agrees with what Matthew Henry was saying. For example, in Job Chapter 12, look at it, it's on the screen here. Job 12, verse 7 says, But now ask the beast, and let them teach you, and the birds of the air, and let them tell you, or speak to the earth, and let it teach you, and let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among all these does not know 
that the hand of Yahweh has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for making all these things. May we have the response that we just read about in Job 12. May we believe what You have written here and not succumb to compromise uh, like the atheistic evolutionists and the theistic evolutionists and the long-earthers have done. May we believe what You have written and believe as it is written. Open our eyes to see the truth proclaim the truth, to live the truth. May we worship You as we walk about our daily lives. May we look to know You. You said You've you've declared Your power in creation. It is clear and it's plain. May we not lose sight of You. Worship You as as we go about our lives. Open our eyes, we pray. Give us the grace we need to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.